Glad you're here. Praise God. What a joy it is to be together, to worship, to pray, to testify in the Lord's Supper. Um, marvelous blessing that God has given us to gather like this, to study his word. And uh, we just come grateful. Will you grab your Bibles with me this morning? Turn to the New Testament letter of First John. Continue our sermon series this morning. Uh, you'll find it in the very back of your Bible after Second Peter, before Jude and Revelation. Uh, today I'm going to preach 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, in what is a very special couple of verses, as John gives a beautiful synopsis of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, as, he, as he enters into chapter 2 of his letter. In this is contrast to what the false teachers of the day were saying, that sin doesn't really matter, that you can be good with God and, and remain in your sin Uh, John is going to show us uh, God's grace to provide an advocate who has made us a way to be free of guilt, the power, and the curse of sin, and to be reconciled to God. And so we're in for a treat this morning, God's good word for us. Look with me, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. God's good word. In opening here of chapter 2, John addresses his listeners by referring to them as my little children. He's writing not to kids, I mean maybe in part, but but to adults, to the church in the different regions by which this letter will get passed around Ephesus and the surrounding areas. And this reference to my little children needs to be rightly heard as a reflection of his affection for them and his authoritative position over them and not seen as demeaning or belittling. Let's first talk about John's proper authority over them as pastor. Uh, We've all been there. Uh, When someone who has God-given authority over us, instructs us, leads us, holds us accountable in ways that we don't like, or maybe even in ways that we don't agree with, But it is important that we see God's good design and command on us is to honor God-appointed authority even when we struggle to like it or agree. This is not something we get to just dismiss. We must do business with this as we aim to rightly honor God. Do you remember our time just a few months ago in chapter 5 of Ephesians? Verse 21, Paul says, We are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Christian practice of submission is really important. Authority is a major part of the economy of God. Uh, What is submission? To submit means to line up under another. Biblical submission means a joyful, humble, wholehearted commitment to follow appointed authority. When the Spirit is at work in us, we practice Submission to our God-given authorities that He's commanded us to submit. 
And when we do this, we show reverence to Christ. Reverence to Christ. What is that? What does it mean to show reverence to Christ? To revere is to have a right fear, a high regard, a deep respect. Okay, You can't say I have reverence for Christ, but then not do what Scripture says we are to do. They must go hand in hand. We honor Christ as our Lord by submitting to those in authority that He has placed over us. What are the authorities God has placed over you? Well, a lot of that depends on who you are, who God ordained providentially you to be. Uh, The command of Ephesians 21 sets up a particular uh, string of counsel and exhortation in those latter chapters of Ephesians, by which Paul then moves into different elements of of submission and authority in the different aspects of life that we see. Let me give you a quick reminder of those, because I think it's helpful for application for us today, that we would not see what John's doing here and then move on, but we'd really put it to work in our own life. Is this happening for us? Uh, the examples we see in those latter chapters of Ephesians. Number one, Ephesians 6.1. Children are to submit to their parents. This is proper. This honors God. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Uh, another example, servants are to submit to their masters. Uh, Ephesians 6.5, bondservants, obey your earthly masters. And what is really under, underneath this line of teaching in Scripture is also what Paul says in Colossians 3.22, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. This means if you're a player on a team, you honor and submit to your coach. If you're a soldier in the military, you submit to your ranking officer. If you're an employee of a business, you submit to your boss. If you're a student in a school, you submit to your teacher. Also, other references in these passages are wives are to submit to their husbands. Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we read that husbands are to submit to Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.3, what I want you to understand is that the head of every man is Christ. The head of every wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Also, we see in Romans 13.1 that society is to submit to the governing authorities. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Uh, church members are to submit to their elders. We see in Hebrews thirteen seventeen, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. All believers are to submit to Christ. Ephesians 5.24, the church submits to Christ. In James 4, 6, and 7, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Remember that God's Word is also clear to say that we are to honor the authority He puts over us in its different ways, unless what that authority is telling us to do is unbiblical, or against God's holy standard or command. In other words, we are not to participate in sin under the name of obeying authority. When that's being called of us, we do not sin. We obey God rather than man, is what we see in places like Acts 5.29. So when God refers to those whom 
I'm sorry, when John refers to those whom he is called to lead by God, he's called to be their authority. When he calls them my little children, we need to see that it is proper. It is God honoring for him to exercise leadership, instruction, and accountability over them in this way. Now, your flesh may not like the comparison of a subordinate, uh, of, as a subordinate, to being compared to the like of a child under a parent. But we must see that authoritative relationships are a good reality in God's economy, even if our flesh struggles with it. It is only our pride that rejects God's good design of a parent-like leadership over the beloved church. And so it is important, church, that we're doing business with this, that leaders are leading in a biblical, God-honoring way, and that church members are rightly honoring God with proper submission to them. And if that's not happening, then you have an issue of not honoring the Lord that needs to be figured out. We must repent of that. We must honor the Lord in these things. Instead of pride, instead of rebellion, our heart towards the use of this comparison of being compared to that of children under parents I would say Christ in us should bring forth a humility in us that wants to walk with a childlike faith and obedience for the good things that God has designed for us. Just as we would righteously not tolerate our own children to decide for themselves how they should act or which way they should go when it comes to sin or what God commands, we need to honor those God has put over us as we aim above all to honor God. You don't get to disconnect to say, yeah, yeah, I believe that's true for kids under parents, but I I don't want to draw that over to me as an adult under other forms of authority. See that Scripture doesn't allow you to do that. Beloved, in what ways are you guilty of not honoring or submitting to those God has rightly put over you? Your parents, if young, your pastors, your husband, if a wife, your bosses, if employed, if this is you, confess it as sin. Let the work of the Spirit finish its work to then repent of it, to change your practice, to be humble, to honor the Lord in what's needed moving forward. Not to dig your heels in, continue to find reason, self-reason, to make your own way. Again, just as this would be improper for a child to do to their authoritative parents, improper for us to do to the authorities that are above us. It's just that simple, church. Where the Lord makes this clear, we should repent and do what honors God. We should take that step. Now, the other side of the coin here is John exercising not just his authority over the flock, he's called to lead, and therefore uh, to rightly, properly use this term children, but he uses a possessive here that's special to show his affection for them. He says, my little children. This is going to be the, the, we're going to see many references to them as children moving forward, but the table is set here in the front end by using this possessive, my Uh, it is to convey a deep love for them, an affection for those 
in the family of God. Christian, we have to have a right view of what it means to be in the family of God. That we are kids of grace, adopted and brought near to be a forever family. This was God's beautiful plan from the beginning. Ephesians 1, 4-5, In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Our adoption means we formally, legally, and completely become a member of the eternal family of God. It, it is more than just belonging. We are heirs. We are participants in His glory. Romans eight fifteen through 17 For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. We who are redeemed and adopted into God's family call God Father because He is our Father and we are His children. Consider with me the beautiful gift that it is to be legally adopted by God the Father the Lord of all creation, the God of the universe, the ruler of all things, the great and almighty I Am is our Father if we belong to Jesus. Because of what God has done to make us His, John has a a deep love and affection for his blood-bought brothers and sisters whom he calls my little children. In this he sets the table for his affections to be shared in like manner of the other early church pastors who wrote the New Testament. A few examples, 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1.22 Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. There's so much more than just treating each other well. Secular people, damned in sin people, can muster up what it is to treat someone well. No, there's an affection. There's a sincere love for the brethren that we have in Christ. It goes deeper. It's, it's, it's a fervor. It's a, it's a true family affection. In Philippians 1.8, Paul says to the church, for God is my witness, how I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. I'd love to hear this similar um, affection shared among many of the brothers and sisters here at Disciples. For some of you who maybe been in the church in the past, uh, you've shared as of late in the last years how you've come to see the real affection of the body of Christ here in a way that maybe you hadn't experienced in the church before, the more formal religious practices of the church. And, and that, that is to be the case. You should feel that. You should have that. It's family. We're family to each other. This isn't just the place where we've set up our tents. It's, you know, it's, 
Christ has bought us to be brothers and sisters now and forever. And we cherish that. The, the word that Paul uses here, the affection of Christ Jesus, that word affection is, is in the Greek a, a word that gets to intestines, inner organs. He's, the idea is that it's not just an act of willpower. It's, it like comes from within. It comes from my guts. I, I, I deeply love you. Our unity in Christ should propel us to truly and deeply love each other, submit to those in authority over us in a way that we revere Christ rightly. He goes on, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Not only does God not take sin lightly, as the false teachers of John's day were pitching to people, but it is His holy command that we do not sin. Listen to how Paul speaks of this in Romans 8.29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined, the elect, He's speaking of His chosen people, to be saved by Christ. To what? To be conformed to the image of His Son. His Son who is righteous, holy, that His plan for the redeemed is to be conformed to righteousness, to holiness. Uh, in Ephesians 1.4, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. God is serious about us not sinning. He's serious about righteousness, holiness. God's design is to set us free from our bondage to sin, to empower us then with the Spirit and the Word, the accountability of the church, that He would sanctify us, that He would mature us, we would sin less and less. How are you growing in your faith? How are you growing in your obedience? You should never get beyond great markers of Christian maturity. No matter how long you've been doing this, no matter what roles you have or have had, until glory, there is much work to be done to mature us and grow us. This should be a reality of our testimony, church. Now, God loves us to give us help to fight sin, to turn from sin, that we would not sin. And one of the big ways he helps us, John refers to here. He says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Something is written and given so that its readers would sin less or not sin. This is a great gift. This very letter of 1 John is included in the holy canon of Scripture. It is... God's Word for us. John is saying what the rest of Scripture is saying. The Word of God is a true help to not sin. King David said it well, Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your Word in my heart that I may not sin against you. It is a practical, helpful tool to not sinning. The Word of God. The words of God written, revealed, given to us. Church, beloved, do you rightly see God's Word as a given help 
to not sin? Are you at war with your sin? Are you serious about turning from sin and not returning to it? Then you must be serious about God's Word. Regular to store it up in your mind and in your heart. Ready to be accountable to it in every way. To forego this is to make room for sin to fester. And if, as you hear this this morning, you are feeling very convicted, I don't spend time in God's Word, I don't store it up, I don't, I don't train with it, I don't memorize it, I pray that today would be the first day of a new practice for you, of a new discipline, of an increased fervor for the Word of God. Let's pause for a moment this morning to be reminded of the blessings that God's Word is to us, according to Scripture, in a few of many ways that we could focus on. But let me give you a few. Number one, God's Word revives the soul. Why do we need God's Word to revive the soul? Because not every day in the Lord is better than the last. That's just real. In this life, tomorrow might be way more miserable than yesterday. There's a reality of suffering, of struggle, of hardship that we face. Our flesh wants only... uh, a progressive movement and, and all of the, the consequences of a fallen world to be behind us. But we're still here. We're still exiles. Our body's still breaking down. People still practicing sin, letting us down. Things not going our way all the time. David says in Psalm 19.7, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. There are many days when our soul needs to be revived, invigorated, helped, encouraged psalm 23 2 through 3 david says he leads me beside still waters he restores my soul the walk with your shepherd the the sitting with his word is is like water it's 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 like food and there's a restoring of your soul of your spirit that happens when you spend time in his word We need the Word to reorient us, to remind us, to stay abiding in the vine so that we avoid the the lies of the temporary. We we see the difference between the light and the darkness. We, we, We identify the deception of the deceiver, the peril of vanity, the longings of the flesh. God's Word is the kindling to keep the fire of our Hearts for Christ burning white hot. Pastor John Piper once said it this way, even on days when every cinder in your heart feels cold, if we crawl into the Word of God and cry out for ears to hear, the cold ashes will be lifted and the tiny spark of life will be fanned. Christian, if you haven't had those days, you will. God is clear that if you belong to Christ, you are alive in Him. You you don't run out of faith. You You don't stop. But can there be seasons, times, where you just feel buried in cold ashes? And where is my faith? And where is my fervor for God and what is righteous? Climb into the Word. Even when you don't want to, it is a gift to you to invigorate your soul for Him. To leave it on the shelf 
is to miss the blessing it's intended to be. Number two, God's word is a source of our sanctification. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shines as lights in the world. The call to live without sin. Philippians 2, 14-15 That there's a growing maturity in us to look less like the world and more like Christ. Jesus' plea in His prayer to the Father in John 17, verse 17 He says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is the truth. That the truth of God's word would mature, would sanctify us in holiness. Number three, God's word is a light for our path. In a dark world, the word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Psalm 119, 105. When the Word of God is at work in your life, it brings you to the bigger story of God. Reminds you who's in charge. It illuminates your understanding rightly of who God is and how He's at work. And it helps you to discern light from darkness, sin from righteousness, so that your path is lit properly. When, only when that's happening will you not sin. To stay deceived, to stay self-minded, to make assumptions apart from truth is to climb into sin, be self-justified for why you're doing what you're doing. God's Word is an authority to our lives. We belong to Him in Christ. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. You need help to turn from sin, then be taught and be reproved and be corrected and be trained in what is righteous. And what do you have for that? The Word of God is sufficient. You don't need it and something else. You need the Word of God. Church, it's the Word of God. Grab on to that. He has blessed us to reveal, to write it down. Praise be to God for His Word. John 14, 23-24, Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Our full and right submission to the authority of God's Word is so serious that Scriptures give clear warning to those who do not submit themselves to it. Proverbs 13, 13. Whoever despises the Word brings destruction on himself. But whoever reveres the commandment will be rewarded. Are you languishing in sin lately? Are you struggling with doing what honors God. Maybe in that, kind of turning away from what God's Word clearly says and processing it or packaging it differently in your own mind. And no wonder why you're struggling. 
revere the commandment and be rewarded. It's essential to not only study God's Word, know it, teach it accurately to others, but you must believe it. Abide in it. Obey every word of God so that we do not sin. The problem is our tendency in the flesh is to submit to our own rationale, our our human mind, instead of the authority of the Almighty. As a result, then we form views of who God is, or how He acts, or how He doesn't act, based on our personal feelings, our our own logic, our upbringing, our, our experiences, instead of the divine perfectly written words of God in Scripture. This is so dangerous and detrimental when we do this. I've seen it. I've seen it be a great roadblock for many who say they love God and long to walk with Him and honor Him and submit to Him, but there's things that are just like, no, I... I won't listen to Scripture. I won't trust God here. I'm going to do this my way. We need to take very seriously the words of God and submit to God's authority and conform to His image and not try to make them conform to ours. Do you truly and fully submit to God's Word on all matters? Or are you guilty of looking for God's Word to conform to you? And I'm about to read you a passage that I've read many times before. And maybe for you, you've been good at kind of always seeing this as applying to others. But for any of the ways that you've denied what God's Word's calling you to and made your own way, maybe this morning it's time to see that it applies to you so that you can confess that as sin and turn from it. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They will have itching ears and accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and turn away from listening to the truth to wander off into myths. 2 Timothy 4, 3-4 This is not far from us. Even recently, we've seen many who we've loved find their way to something else because of this. Because a crossroad came and they were not willing to submit to God's word, they made it a dividing point. So they went and found people who would tell them what they wanted to hear. I've sadly watched this happen far too many times. To reject blatantly what God's Word boldly, clearly, authoritatively says. To to confound what is simple. Beloved, we are at war with our sin and our selfishness and and our self-reign. Because of this, we have to realize how desperate we are for the authority of God's Word to correct us. It has been my ongoing hope and desire 
to not be done with this. Even in my own journey of convictions I've had, reasons why I did this and not this, and felt good, felt like they were right, felt like they were justified, felt like they were even honoring God. My own way of looking at what I thought was the fruit of this or that, and simply coming back to Scripture to say, but that's not God's way. And so am I willing to put away something I'm good at, something I'm convicted about, to fully belong to God and to do it His way? Even when my mind says the, the results are going to be bad or not as good or whatever other ways we, we spin it. And I, I praise God for the ways that He has done this and He continues to do it. And, and I have said to other leaders in our church, who are to hold me accountable, if and when I get to one of those crossroads and I reject God's clear word to do it my way is the day I need to stop pastoring. No matter what it cost. We're desperate for his word to lead us, to show us sin, that we would not sin, that we would honor him. Why do you come to church today? I really want you to think about this. Because we, we maybe come because this is what I do on Sundays. Um, I, I love these people. I love the music. I, there, there's a lot of benefits. I want to honor and obey God and the things He's called me to. This is a first fruits of my week. So I'm committed to this. I love, I love how packed our church was today. I know it doesn't necessarily feel that way second hour. But I mean... I mean, so many people were with us today on a holiday weekend. Why? Because this is the best part of the week. We're going to worship God. But, but let me come back. Why do you come to church today? A big motivator for why needs to be because you see how desperate you are for God's Word to shape you and convict you and lead you in the light and away from sin, that you never get to a place where you're like, I think I figured it out. I, I, think, I, think, I think I've got this. You remain desperate until glory to come humbly before His Word to convict and shape and lead you. Do you value the writings of Scripture and the help they are to you, especially when it comes to helping you avoid sin? I want to use an illustration that I've used in the past. I think it's very helpful. Um, it's especially to see our need for God's Word to keep us from sin. In, in maybe some ways that sometimes we struggle to see it as that. Let's say that you're en route for a long-anticipated special day with the family at the beach. It is hot in Bakersfield, and you're ready to get to some cooler weather. The sun is out. The, the, the coastal clouds have cleared. You get, you get to the, the coastal highway, and there's the blue water, the ocean's out before you, and you just can't wait to get to the sand and to set up. So you do. You park. You you walk out on the sand. You're ready to set up your blanket and your umbrella. The kids can't wait to shed their stuff and go jump in the water. And before you, right there where you're aiming to enjoy the beach, is a big sign that says danger. 
Swim at your own risk. Sharks in the water. Now, do you let the kids go run and jump in and swim? You don't have to answer. I know your answer. Why not? I mean, let's, let's have a logical thought about this. Sharks have been in the ocean from the beginning of time. Right? This is not new information that there's sharks in the ocean. Every time you ever swam in the ocean, sharks were there. Right? Whether you like it or not. Okay? So that's not changed. What's changed? What's different about this day and this moment? In that moment, in that place, someone has identified that under those waves, sharks are lingering in a very present way. In a way that you are now warned. So you don't risk it. You have your sandwiches. You build your sandcastles. You get your sunburn. And you get in the car and go home. Now, was your day, was your day a total bust? No. You still got out of the Bakersfield heat. You had some nice time with the, with the family, making some memories. Do you blame the sign for your bad day? No. Why? Because it was a help to you. That sign may have literally saved your kids' lives that day. Because you don't have x-ray vision to know what lingers under the waves. And yet, when we are honest, there is a part of us that really sometimes wrestles with having some real ill feelings about the stupid sign. And yet we've got to see the blessing that God's word is to us to show us sin that we would turn from it, avoid it, not go there. To count it as something we're thankful for. Not in our flesh, something we just like, yeah, I'll read it a little less, I'll feel a little less convicted, I'll figure it out. This is why God's word is such a blessing. It helps us to see what sin is so we can turn from it by faith and honor God with our days, not ourselves. That we would cherish God. And what God ordained John to write. I write in this letter that you may not sin. Now, the simple reality is even though we're saved, we still do sin until God takes us home to glory. And so John speaks of this reality and what he says next. Look with me. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Question 33. What is sin? In the words of catechism, we have a nice clean answer. Sin is disobeying God. Sin is any disobedience in heart or deed to God's perfect law and commandments. So let's break that down quickly. Disobedience in deed is what you do. It's doing or saying something that God forbids or not doing or saying something that God commands is sinful. Disobedience in heart is having a wrong state of mind, motivation, or desire behind what we do or feel. The sin of Commission is the things we do that we should not. We commit those sins. The sin of omission are the things we don't do that we should. And underneath all that is often sinful reasons why we do the right thing. 
still sin. There's so many ways that we sin. Because God hates sin, we should take it seriously to know what is sinful and then to turn from it. Please understand John's simple but profound point here. Christians will and do sin. We are not perfect. But we also don't claim that we're not perfect and then just keep living. No, because we belong to Jesus, because we love God, we, we want to make war with our sin. We want to do what honors God. So we lean into Jesus. We lean into His Word. We lean into accountability in the church. Because the biggest thing coming out of my mouth is I want to honor God. Help me to do that. Are you struggling with something? Are you debating about something? Say that again and again and again to keep you on track so that you don't grab on to an idea, a conviction, and run to the goalpost with it. So that you're able to be challenged, rightly convicted, and sent on the right path. I want to do what honors God. What is that here? That's my motivation. That's why I'm here. Praise God that we have Christ. Amen? And this is John's point to the beloved here, that, Christian, you're not alone. You have Christ, who is perfectly righteous. You have an advocate. But if anyone does not sin, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The Greek word John uses here for advocate uh, is parakaletos. It is one who is a comforter and an intercessor. Jesus uses the same description, the same word, to describe the work of the Holy Spirit in the redeemed. In John's Gospel, chapter 14, 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and He will give you another parakalitis, another helper, to be with you forever. Notice that Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as another helper. Therefore highlighting that we have two. Himself being the first and the Holy Spirit being the other. The Holy Spirit's help is to comfort, is to convict, is to guide us in the here and now. Jesus' advocacy, His intercession, His help, is that we are saved and justified before a holy God because of Him. It is because of Christ alone that we who belong to Him are no longer condemned by our sin. This is a huge reality, Christian, for who you are. And it's something you must never lose sight of. Let's, let's climb into that for a moment. Those who are saved by Christ no longer stand alone to represent themselves. You have a perfect advocate. This is way better than a teammate, a mentor, Realize that you're one of two. You either stand alone and represent yourself, or you have an advocate who will stand in your place. Many years ago, I was audited by the IRS. 
mentioned this before to a few of you and bezeline scheme no, no i'm kidding there's there, there there was nothing illegal it was a random audit my tax guy said they basically pulled my number and government doing what it does it was my turn to basically show in a given year that my write-offs that my tax return was actually what i said it was right there's a lot of ways you can lie on your tax return so an audit basically is like you got to prove it these things were really for these things and it all adds up and if if i can prove it i can justify it in tax court then i don't owe any money if i can't i own i owe money maybe lots of money or or maybe worse depending on how much you scammed your tax return right so I, I don't know a lot about, you know, te- what's needed in tax court to, like, rightly represent myself. So what did I do? I got an advocate. Uh, my tax accountant kn- knows my tax return, knows my tax situation, and knows the law and all those ins and outs. So he would represent me. He knows the details of my tax return better than I. And so here's the key that we must understand and capture what John is saying here. What do I look like in court? I look like my advocate. I didn't even go to tax court. I wasn't even there. He went before the judge and he represented my case. So when the judge hears him, the judge thinks of me. And when it comes down to it, if he's brilliant, then I'm brilliant. And if he fails, then I fail. Your advocate represents you in the courtroom, and you're like in your advocate. Now, now consider how game-changing it is for you, Christian, that your advocate is Jesus. God, the Son, eternal, almighty. And, and, and also consider that what you're having to give account for is not one year of tax write-offs. It's a lifetime in every little way of how you did not meet His holy, perfect standard. Now with this in mind, consider the defense that one would have to prepare to go before the holy God. And there's so many passages I could point to. Let me give you a taste or a reminder of just a couple. Matthew 12, 36 says that we will have to give an account for every careless word we spoke in our life. Romans 14, 23 says, Whatever we did in our life that was not done in faith was sin. You already feel completely buried? I want to help you firm up this very important view of what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is not for Jesus to simply be an example for you of how to live your life. He can't just be a life mentor or, or an inspiration. You might say, well, I pray to Jesus, I ask Him for help, I read my Bible, I, I, I learn how to be a good Christian based on its teachings. Let me point out something. If this is your pursuit of Christianity, do you see what you're doing? You are still preparing your own defense. In this mode, it's still all on you. 
while you may be working really hard to be a good person and to do the right thing and to be like Jesus, when you are held up against the holy standard of God, you come far short because you are not Jesus. Only Jesus met the perfect holy standard of God. No, you need the record of another, and not just any other, only one other, and that is Jesus. Or you're doomed. Colossians 1.27 Christ in you, the hope of glory. Only when you truly and fully confess your sin, trust your life to Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord, do we stop living for and representing ourselves We are dependent on Christ all the way. I have nothing to boast in, Paul says. Only Jesus, that he sees what his advocacy means. When you do this, you give up your playbook. And you take up his. You set aside your plans, your dreams, your priorities, and make them secondary to his. Why? Because you belong to him now. He is your advocate before God. And when the Holy Father looks upon you, He sees Jesus. He represents you now. And when God sees sees Christ in you, He sees you as utterly beautiful and completely accepted. Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, He is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Christians, see the Lord's advocacy for you in this very moment. It's ongoing work He does. Not only did He come here to advocate for us, to intercede for us, but to buy our debt so that we could be forgiven and reconciled. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Hear me clearly. Everyone will be judged. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that Jesus came to be judged on behalf of many of us. We call this substitutional atonement or propitiation. This is John's next point. Look with me at verse 2. He, speaking of Jesus the righteous, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We'll come back to that part in a moment. Jesus, who is perfectly righteous, is sent by God the Father to take on flesh, to live without sin, to die in the place of many guilty sinners. When he dies, something game-changing, very important happens. He becomes the propitiation of our sins, For all of us who trust in Him alone for salvation. Okay, so what's that big word that I've said four or five times now? Propitiate is to appease God's holy wrath that was rightly due our sin. It has been put off of us because of Christ. It is atonement. It's it's what makes us able to have fellowship with the holy God without compromising His holiness. Our sin separated us from God rightly. Atonement brings us 
to relationship with God now and forever. Hebrews 2.17, summarizing the teaching of the Old Testament, pointing to Jesus. For this reason, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. Why did Jesus come? To put on flesh, to identify with us, but to represent us also. To pay the bounty that was on our head. He came to take our seat in our deserved execution so that the wrath due our sin is removed from us, it's put on Him, and it's satisfied. So justice happens. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin. Jesus knew no sin. He takes our sin on Him so that in Him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus has all authority. See this. See the wonder of this. The praiseworthiness of this. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn in all creation. By Him all things are created. In heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things are created through Him and for Him. He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. That's Jesus. Colossians 1. 15 and 17 through 17. Jesus comes not to wield His power and His righteous judgment, but to wield His grace in substitutional atonement. He who is pure and innocent, spotless, takes on flesh, and He takes our place. John the Baptist sees Him coming. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29 The good news of Jesus Christ because of the righteous and fierce judgment of God no longer hangs over us who are alive in Christ. It is propitiated. It is appeased. It is satisfied. Justice is won. We have an advocate who intercedes for our eternal standing with the Holy God. Praise be to God. Amen? Church, understand that our advocate doesn't stand there and make a case before God to say, well, look, at, look on this day, look in this season, look, look what he accomplished, look what she did. What, wasn't this sacrificial? Wasn't that so good? Wasn't that so kind? None of that. That would all be futile. What is sad is to think so many have banked their whole lives on standing before God and making that kind of case, thinking somehow it's going to do. And, and that view is a low view of sin and, and, and a low view of God. Christ doesn't point to us in His advocacy. He points to Himself on our behalf. He puts His perfect record on the table and His atoning work to appease the righteous wrath of God do our sin. And so the words of the famous hymn just are the song of our soul in Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. 
I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. What is your hope for atonement with God? Propitiation from sin? Only Jesus Christ the righteous. It is his perfect righteousness that is imputed, credited to us in Christ's advocacy for us. His righteousness is put on me and my sin and guilt is put on him in my place. This is Jesus' atoning work on behalf of all of his elect. And so we get to the second part of the verse that maybe seems to take us a direction Scripture doesn't, so we need to see it rightly. 1 John 2, 2, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Does that mean Jesus died for the sins of all people in the whole world? Some people believe that. You might believe that to be true, naively. I just read a passage a moment ago that seemed to say the same thing, right? For John 1, 29. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But we have to let Scripture interpret Scripture so that we understand these things rightly. Scripture is clear to teach that Jesus' atonement on the cross was not for all people, everyone who was ever born, no, but for God's elect, who are a worldwide people. We know that many die in their sin, go to hell, pay for their sin in eternal judgment. Scripture is clear to this. So, therefore, their sin has not been propitiated. The wrath of God has not been removed from them, as Jesus does in his advocacy for his elect. So it is not true that Jesus propitiated the sin of everyone. If that was true, and then they were still condemned to hell, that would mean God would not be just. So, who is the world? Well, I've taught many times before that word, that phrase, the world, is used many times in the New Testament, up to seven, if not more, uses of the word that mean different things. We have to make sure we're reading it correctly so we're not reading into Scripture and relating Scripture teach us. And what really is the emphasis in these passages is what is being said to a Jewish audience. God's elect of the Old Covenant is being said clearly that the propitiation of Jesus for our sins is not for ours, the Jews only, not for this generation only, but for the sins of the whole world. It, it, it is speaking to a worldwide people, the elect of God that he speaks of so often throughout Holy Scripture. God's people are not just those of one ethnic group or generation. Paul makes this point succinctly in Romans 9.8, saying, well, I wish all of my Jewish family were part of God's elect. He's clear to say that, Romans 9.8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, meaning just the Israelites, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring those whom God has chosen before time as his people, God's elect, for whom Christ died, is a worldwide people. 
a people, as scripture says, of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Jesus himself was clear to speak to this reality in John 10, 14 through 16, saying, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold that I must bring them also, that they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock and one shepherd. The big theological term for this historic tenet of the Christian faith is called limited atonement. The atonement of Jesus is not unlimited. It's not for all people. It's, It's limited to the elect. Also defined, maybe you read in different things, definite atonement or particular atonement. Word of Truth Catechism is a great, succinct definition of this, and it just helps us wrap up everything I just said. Hear it clearly. Christ's work on the cross was not done for every human to ever live. Rather, it was done exclusively for God's elect, who are chosen people from throughout all human history and represent every tribe, tongue, and nation. In doing this, Christ accomplished substitutionary atonement for the chosen ones by canceling the debt of all their sin, appeasing God's holy wrath, and earning all the benefits of their salvation. So when we read, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, we see that He is speaking of His worldwide elect, whom He perfectly chose from before time. If Jesus truly died for the sins of the whole world, then wouldn't that mean that the entire world's sins are paid for? Now, while he is surely capable of this, let me make that point. We know from Holy Scripture that not all are saved, and therefore many remain under God's wrath. So, church, we don't declare something about who Jesus died for, that's not biblical, even though it might be really popular among people. Even though unbelievers, or sometimes ourselves, want to say, but I really like the idea of Jesus just dying for everyone. I I think that makes him like a a nicer God. right? I mean, that's the way we think. But but we've got to think biblically, church. God is perfect and holy. We are not. We don't outdo him when it comes to these things. We're not better than him. The late, great John Calvin said of this point in John's letter, John's purpose was only to make his blessing common to the whole church. Therefore, under the word all or whole, he does not include the reprobate, those who are not chosen of God, those who will be damned in their sin, righteous, will, will deserve and earn the righteous wrath of, of God. He does not include the reprobate but refers to all who would believe and those who were scattered through the various regions of the earth. The grace of Christ is really made clear when it is declared to be the only salvation of the world. And so with that, I read you Acts 4.12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Amen? Amen. Praise God for His grace to save many. Praise God for Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Praise God for the propitiation 
because of our advocate, Jesus Christ, that he's made for our sins. He is truly worthy to be praised. Pray with me. Father, we are blessed. Privileged beyond what we deserve to to get to gather so freely this morning, to enjoy this space, this air conditioning, this this camaraderie among the family of God, the the the, the sounds of good music, the, the 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 song of the brethren in worship for you, the the tangible testimony of of the uh, of the consuming of the bread and the wine and pointing to Christ's blood and body given. Uh, we thank you for your word, for sustaining it that we have the Word of God in our language to know and to study. This is a great gift of so many things that we're guilty of undervaluing. May we not be guilty of undervaluing the Word of God, but to hold fast to it, to to meditate on it day and night, to to benefit by all of its help. Oh, you have done a marvelous thing, a gracious thing, that Jesus would die on our behalf. And my sins would be appeased. Justice would happen. And I would be adopted in your family. This gospel you've given us is sweet. I pray that it, it is on our lips. It's in our lives as we go from this place today. That the brightest light that shines on this day, on tonight, on this night, with so many lights in the sky, is the light of the gospel at work among the company we're in, the neighbors we gather around, the people we run into at the store, that, that we would testify life in Christ. For anyone who's gathered or is listening to the podcast later who is still guilty in sin, still Lord of their own lives, still doing it their way, that there would be real repentance, real confession of sin to turn and honor you, to trust you with it all, to be saved, set free. We love you. We worship you now because of Christ. We pray.